Welcome to Joppa Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education, or as we like to call it, Joffy. Welcome to our new series, After the Plague. Nigel Savage in conversation with new guests each week discussing the state of the world and the global Jewish community in a post-COVID-19 world. You'll hear an inside account of how each of our guests is experiencing the lockdown, as well as timely conversations for a changing world. So grab a cup of tea or head out for a walk and join us as we talk about everything from favorite ice cream flavors to the international response to climate change. So I want to say hi and welcome. Um, it's seven o'clock in Israel. It's noon here in New York. And I want to welcome everybody to this week's installment of After the Plague, Nigel Savage in conversation with. And I'm very excited, hi Yossi, I'm very excited indeed to be, uh, to be talking this week with Dr. Alam Tal, who many of you know. Uh, uh, like Hazan, he's a product of North Carolina. Uh, he made Aliyah. He was on Kibbutz Keturah. Um, he founded both uh, the Israel Union for Environmental Defense and the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies. Um, with some of the proceeds from the Bronfman Prize, uh, he founded an amazing project called This Is My Earth. Uh, he was a professor for a long time at Ben Gurion, now he's at Tel Aviv. And he's also very happily one of the leaders of Kachal Velavan. And as we, as we may get to a little bit later on, we're hoping that Alon, who has had a big role in public policy all of your life, may yet have a bigger platform still in the future. But for now, Alon, welcome. And just tell us literally like where you are and how has the pandemic been for you and your family so far? Well, for academics whose children have left home, uh, being locked in your house with a good internet connection is not necessarily a bad thing. I also live in a community called Maccabim, which is sort of the on the edge of Israel's border with the Green Line. But what it means is that we're sort of a little more rural and the authorities don't seem to care too much if you go out and go running. So at a personal level, this has been almost pleasant. Uh, my wife came home from the States visiting her parents who were not feeling well and uh, she immediately went into quarantine. I volunteered to join her and I've been in ever since. It's been a very productive period. My students are producing, but of course I'm full of angst and, and concern about the long-term implications in terms, and of course, the, the health toll that's being felt, certainly much more in the States, but also to some extent in Israel. Well, before we talk about the public policy thing, first of all, just personally, I'm just interested to know what have you just personally learned from this, been surprised by, enjoyed, been shocked by, just just sort of at the personal rather than even the political level, just just some of what the last six weeks has been, been like for you. Well, Surely it has brought out uh, some of the best in Israel, at least in my own community. Uh, people that I jogged past every day for 10 years, we stop and talk with appropriate distances, of course. And uh, one finds, you know, when we were in quarantine, neighbors brought us all kinds of food. Uh, our 16-year-old uh, neighbor who's been locked in says, well, you're not having your big Independence Day party, but surely you can go out on the stairwell and bring out your guitar and we'll all come out and sing it. So I think that it has brought people together in, in a very positive way. And um, it has surely put some of our security issues on the back burner and one hopes that that would give everybody in this region more perspective. But um, I, I have a, a personal weakness that I try to find the silver lining in everything. So there's plenty of one could say that's been negative and that's fairly self-evident. Self I think it's also universal. 
But I think that for me, um, and the final thing I want to say is the remarkably high quality of Israeli news. I am so impressed with the intelligence of the, the teams that are reporting what's going on in Israel, the depth of their um, perception and, and understanding of these issues. Uh, they all seem to have postdocs in epidemiology at this point. So yeah, it's, it's not been a bad time. I want to add, by the way, that um, I was listening to something, I can't remember where it was from, but about, about Haredi responses to the coronavirus. And it was somebody who was saying that despite the fact that the Haredi sector was maybe a week or two behind in responding and that there were some problems about that, but that um, one of the things that they thought was that the Haredi world after this would be different. And that just as the Gulf War sort of introduced radio into the Haredi world in Israel, that this pandemic had effectively introduced the internet into the Haredi world and that the way that the Haredi world influenced with the rest of Israel and the state might not only be different, but might in certain respects actually be, be better or healthier in the future. And that was also a sort of silver lining story. Yeah. I'm just I, I follow that very closely. Uh, I'm chairman of a department at Tel Aviv University and we just recruited a new faculty member who was the first woman ultra-Orthodox faculty member at Tel Aviv. Her name is Nahumi Yafe. She actually lived in Brooklyn for the last two years while she was at Princeton as a postdoc. And she is absolutely brilliant and um, opens our eyes to the reality. But of course, what all of us tend to do is, is to be very, very um, simplistic in homogenizing what is really a very heterogeneous community. And I think there is a, a certain chunk of the Haredi community that was already connected and they gained a lot of legitimacy. There's been some fascinating uh, episodes in this interface between the secular and ultra-Orthodox world. And most of it better than one would have expected. The, the famous one, of course, is, is in B'nai Brak. I don't know how much this is covered outside of Israel, but you know, because of the astonishingly high rates, and again, uh, B'nai Brak has four times the number of cases of Tel Aviv, even though it's a quarter of the size. So it, it had tremendous prevalence there, and the government decided to actually impose a curfew. And as part of their strategy to uh, make it work in terms of service the people, they just took all of the Israeli paratrooper units, sort of the, the symbol of the Israeli macho secular society, and they said, okay, you are now uh, leaving the borders. Your task is to service the people of B'nai Brak. And they did it, first of all, that they left their weapons out. They did everything with their red berets, as it were. But, you know, carrying uh, old people to safety and bringing food. And it was uh, apparently a, a beautiful experience for both sides. It was the right pre-Pesach period. So they were having to help the people kasha their homes and, and introduce them to a whole world uh, in which the, the secular, largely secular soldiers were unfamiliar, but at the same time, uh, sort of the human kindness that they expressed seemed to have left some sort of a, a, a mark on the, the generally anti-military ethos of B'nai Brak. So one can hope that there were some moments there, and yet indeed that the ultra-Orthodox community, which is paying terribly with horrible uh, health impacts here, as they did in, in the United States and in New York, might come out of it a little more open to connecting given the, the consequences. Thank you. So I wanted to go on to the politics for a second. And just before asking you about what, what should happen, I, 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 I'm not totally ignorant vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Israeli politics. I follow it to some extent, um, but, but still I am a little bit confused by one or two things that are going on at the moment. Sure. Now, I what do you got? know that there were three elections 
I know that there were complicated conversations afterwards. I know that in the very recent period, finally, there was an agreement essentially between Bibi and Kachal Vilavan, blue and white, to have a new coalition government. And I'm aware also that there are some people on the sort of like liberal left who were disappointed and who seem to feel why disappointed has... disappointed might be a, a huge understatement but uh, right. who, 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 irate and furious yes whose perspective is we didn't vote for these people in order to keep Bibi in power and on the other hand there are clearly a whole load of people who have said for a number of reasons this is this is why we're doing this and you're actually i think one of the leaders of kakhov lavan and i I, even before we talk about the pandemic and, and so on, can you just try and explain if, if it's the case that you think ultimately that this was not even a, a fantastically great thing, but the least bad of the available alternatives, can you just try and explain how you see this and, and how it's arisen and, and why and in what respects it's good? I, I'm glad you asked that because I know there is a lot of um, criticism out there and I, I think we need to address it head on. Um, look, nobody is happy with this uh, unity government, certainly not on the Likud side and, and on our side, it, it's almost heartbreaking in many ways. Nonetheless, um, I would argue, as was a wonderful article in Haaretz, actually from the Chemish Dasta this uh, Friday, that, that a, sometimes political parties break promises and it's a good thing. Israel's full of cases where politicians broke their promise. Menachem Begin said he wouldn't give back a grain of sand in the Sinai, and I think we're all happy that he did and made peace with Egypt. And Ariel Sharon said he would never uh, talk to the uh, PLO unless it was in the battlefield that made it and ended up giving up their, uh, the Gaza Strip. So there are times when, when circumstances change and leaders have to ch also change with them. And I think that's what happened here. After three um, stalemated elections where no party was able to form a majority, we were faced with basically uh, three options. Option number one is go to a fourth election, which would cost between one and two billion shekels. Wouldn't happen because of the corona dynamics for at least another eight or nine months, which means the government would take another year that we'd be living with an unelected government, which is pushing the country in a very, very right-wing, um, unhealthy direction. That was option number one. I said the worst one. Then the second option was that maybe a baby would end up convincing two or three uh, members of Knesset to join over and we'd have a very stable, unstable, very right-wing ultra-Orthodox government, or we could bite the bullet, which is what we did. And given that circumstances, the agreement, which was, uh, I don't know, um, signed last week is astonishingly favorable. Let's remember that the second that uh, Benny Gantz decided that he was gonna go ahead and try to forge an agreement, half of his party, almost, in other words, 16 out of 23, out of 33 members decided they were not going with him. So we only went over with 17 members uh, of our party and maybe we'll find out today two more of the Labour Party against 59 members of the right-wing coalition. So the asymmetry is, is very, very uh, pronounced. And yet the agreement is what they call a, it's a symmetrical agreement. Every uh, uh, position that a Likud minister has has to be balanced with a with a blue and white minister, all the committees will be jointly done. It is a partnership and it is an asymmetrical one in terms of numbers, but in terms of the way it's gonna work functionally, we will have an equal say. And that's quite uh, reassuring. You have to remember that Israel has been facing some fairly profound questions about where we wanna go in terms of rule of law and democracy. And for those of us who believe very strongly that having an independent judiciary 
and holding uh, up constitutional principles above the whims of a, of a legislature and executive branch are sacrosanct to a democracy, uh, this was the moment of truth because the Likud ran on a, on a, on a campaign of taking that away from us and, and moving to a much more, um, I don't know, I wouldn't want to go say fascist, but certainly a government which is less um, inclined to accept majority rights and respect the courts. And we felt this was a red line that we couldn't cross. And it would seem, again, we haven't put the government together yet, but given the fact that we will have the Ministry of Justice and given the fact that the selection of judges will be more or less controlled by our party, in the or the left, the um, we've managed to stop that particular danger in its tracks, and I think if that isn't that in itself is enough. Add to that the fact that Bibi Netanyahu will be going to trial in May, and if he gets convicted, will step off. And even if he doesn't, in a year and a half, he has agreed to step off the stage. Now he has aspirations to become the president of Israel, a, a ceremonial role. But this is in itself a, a very important, I think, uh, transition that we should have done a while ago. As somebody who feels that he's long since overstayed his welcome and has uh, sort of drifted into certain corrupt gray areas. Um, there are other uh, things which I could say are, are good about us being in there, certainly the quality of the people we're going to bring into it, the fact that now we're demanding to have a professional minister of health, we're going to bring an Arab woman in as a minister, we have the first uh, Ethiopian director of, of uh, absorption for this, so there's a lot of good things, but there's a lot of things which I'm not happy with because half of that government is going to be a Likud government, so anybody who felt we were going to have a slam dunk here is disappointed. But in the real world, not in the fantasy land that we all lived in while we were in the election, this is the best we can do. After 16 months of stalemate, I have no apologies. I'm grateful that Benny Gantz uh, essentially committed a political suicide, at least if you read the pundits. But he did what 63% of the voters of Blue and White wanted him to do, which is let's get moving. Let's start bringing our country together. So, Alon, thank you for that. And before I ask you the next couple of questions that I'm going to ask you, I want to note that we have other people joining us on Facebook, but even this, this smaller group here on Zoom includes uh, a bunch of people who are in Israel right now. And and a David Schwartz, the yes, greatest bass player ever to perform in, in Jacob's Ladder and in major nightclubs around uh, Kfar Saba. You know. There you go. A bunch Legend. of people. And people who've spent a lot of time in Israel. And so I, I, I simply want to say that, that, that after my next couple of questions, I'm going to open it to questions for other people. And so if you're on the Zoom, I just want to invite you, if you have a question, feel free to just type it into the chat, uh, the chat box, the chat line. And if you're listening to us right now on Facebook and you have a question, you can put it on Facebook and uh, Liana or Ellie will cross that over in the chat uh, to me. But Alon, going back to you, also, just, just before we go to policy things, I also want to ask one other technical thing. It has been in the newspapers in the last two, three, four days that clearly, by the way, in parentheses, Israel desperately needs more Hevre Knesset, right? Israel should go from 100, it had 120 Hevre Knesset in 1948 with a population of 600,000. Now it should have 480 or 600 Hevre Knesset. So you can actually have a government and committees and an opposition, but, well, but Israel- Nigel, by that, by that logic, the United States should have about 5,000 senators, so let's- uh, No, no, the, the, the difference, I think, I think Israel has the smallest legislature of the, at this point of any Western democracy. And I think the point that we're about to get to is that as the government has expanded, it has meant that the number of Kavrei Knesset, they're able, as it were, to hold the government to account has shrunk. 
So it's my understanding that what's going to happen is we're going to have a record number of ministers. And because of that, the, that won't leave enough Hevrei Knesset in the Knesset who aren't ministers. Therefore, some of the Hevrei Knesset who are going to become ministers are going to resign. And that's going to then open up new seats that will be filled by the next people on their respective lists. My question is, can you just in simple terms explain roughly where that's up to? Who, who does resign? Who doesn't? Who takes their places? Who decides? When does that happen? Can you try and just give us a bit of insight into that? Okay, so it happens this evening. I'm, I was called and, and I'm going to be getting a call from Benny Gantz, so I should have a better sense of that in a few hours, although I might not be privy to share. But the, the coalition agreement is quite clear about this. Um, each party that's forming it can, uh, can have five of its ministers resign and have five of its Knesset members, uh, people on the Knesset list, move into the Knesset. Uh, or a third, depending on which, which is more. And so what it essentially means from our perspective is that five of the ministers who have not yet been determined because they haven't been given out the full allocations yet would resign and presumably five people uh, from the blue and white list would move in as the number five person on the, what has now become the blue and white list was originally Khosun El Israel. I think that's a wonderful thing. It's called the Norwegian law, even though it's not exactly the way that they do it in Norway. But the idea is, is like you said, to really give the members of parliament a role as a, as a um, some sort of a balance to uh, check the powers of the executive and to really uh, play that role more seriously and not have this sort of fake uh, legislature, which is mostly all sitting in the executive branch. Um, the problem was, of course, in blue and white was an amalgamation of three parties. So although I was number 20 on the Israel resistance party, I got pushed back to 45 when we merged with the Yeshatid. There's a future party and the, the Telem party. And so uh, the law would require, now that we're back to the original factions, the um, law would say that people, the list people voted for the Knesset, doesn't matter if somebody resigns from a particular faction, they should be replaced by them. And the constitutionality of that has been uh, challenged certainly by the other two groups there. Uh, but uh, right now, the Blue and White Party is going to legal experts and trying to see if, if we can justify it to ourselves. I personally have spoken to many uh, experts who think that we can, but this is not my call. Um, but uh, in any event, we surely would uh, want to ensure that there's a, a, a critical mass of parliamentarians there, which means that we might appoint more professionals in our uh, ministerial posts rather than politicians if we can't get this kind of uh, agreement. Uh, we should know this in about a week. Uh, I expect the government will be sworn in about two weeks. I was told that if it does happen within three or four weeks, I would, I would be going in. But there's a lot of things that can uh, derail that. So I'm keeping my expectations very, very low. Every day we get a new sort of a curveball thrown at us. So um, stay tuned. I would say maybe it might happen, but it also very much might not. So, and, and, and so, just to, so I just want to clarify this just in terms of you. And so what this means is, it's likely that there are going to be Hevrei Knesset who are going to become ministers. That will then open up new seats. It's not yet totally clear how they get distributed. If that gets distributed from the proportion of the blue and white list that is going into the government, if it's from that chunk rather than the whole thing, you're the fifth person on the list. And in that circumstance, you might well then become the fifth new blue and white MK. For those who've taken decision theory, if you start playing all the different things that have to happen, most of all, it has to go through the uh, judicial review of the Supreme Court. It will certainly be challenged. It's already been challenged. 
And um, unlike other parties, our party is extremely compliant. If the Supreme Court says this is not kosher, then we're not going to do it. So I think that's that uh, is it remains a big question mark. But let's not talk about me. I think we want to yes. talk about the country yeah. and the um, and the and the challenges that we face uh, with a country with 27% unemployment now and uh, great great uh, concerns about the future. So I want to go on to the policy thing, and I and I and I want to say if blue and white gets. First of all, is blue and white likely to get the Ministry of the Environment first time around? And secondly, if you do, what would Benny Gantz is perfectly, I mean, I know there are written policies that have been written, you've been involved, but if somebody says, Alon, what should we be doing in the first year, the first six months, the first three months? What do you think the, the key things that need to happen? And has that been changed by the pandemic or not? Okay, well, the allocation of ministries is one of the more frustrating aspects of the negotiations. We were frankly quite surprised when we came with what has always been a undesirable low prestige ministry, the Ministry of Environment, and the number one woman in our party who was number four on the list, Miki Chaimovich, sort of a iconic newscaster for those people who watch news for the last 20 years. And, 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 and she is an extremely, um, has become an extremely open and seasoned advocate of environmental interest. And she from the start said, that's all I wanna do is be the Minister of Environment. And so the second that we said we want the position, the Likud said, no, no, we're keeping that as if it was some position they had ever desired or ever done anything with. Indeed, Zev Elkin, a Likud uh, parliamentarian, has held that post for the last four years, and his performance has been mediocre. We've had worse, but not a lot worse. And uh, we were shocked that he insisted he wants to continue doing this job when he showed very little enthusiasm when he held the position. There's different explanations for why this is. Some people would argue that uh, Miki Chaimovich is open question about whether we want to utilize all the natural gas given the carbon footprint, it would be a, a wise thing, suggested that maybe oil and gas interests uh, weighed in and the could listen. Uh, well, who knows the real reason, but what happened at the end, if you read the agreement, is that we have a, um, a cycle design. So that for the first year and a half, that position will go to Likud. And after a year and a half, either the Ministry of Energy or the Ministry of Environment would go in I'm pretty certain they would rather not give us the Ministry of Energy uh, for a variety of reasons, it's a much larger ministry. So I'm hopeful that for the second round, we will have that position and um, we shall see. There's a lot of other important positions we are getting. Um, Mickey, we're hoping might be the Minister of Agriculture. The press is saying she should become Minister of Culture. But having her as a minister in the government would be extremely important for raising this, particularly as we prepare for Israel's uh, position in Glasgow now 2021, the next big uh, UN conference on climate change, Israel's uh, gonna be having to present new positions and hopefully there'll be a ministerial committee that she can be a leader of. So say a few words about what those positions should be. Like at the, at the point that potentially you, you or your party have some control over environmental policy in Israel, what are, the, what are the first two or three big changes that you'd like to see happen? Okay, well, we have, um, uh, within the blue and white party, what we call the, uh, the blue, white, and green um, staff, which has been working, it's about eight or nine of us, most of us environmentalists, a few animal rights people on there as well. And even in the first election, we put together what we call the 100-day plan, things we want to do immediately upon becoming the majority government. Now, when you're not the majority in the government, uh, your ability to do things is, is going to be a little bit uh, hindered, but I think that a lot of the things that we wanted to do are things that would be <clears throat> acceptable. 
For example, uh, in the animal uh, welfare issue, the, the Mickey's extremely keen as it submitted laws to stopping the transport of, of, of cows and cattle and live animals over to Israel who face unbearably cruel conditions. And, 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 and there's uh, several things. That's not exactly my favorite issue, but I must say that spending uh, over a year campaigning with her has opened my eyes to a lot of the things we should be doing better in terms of, of this. But I, I would say clearly the, the two issues which I think are most pressing for Israel and for the planet in that sense are those which involve what I would say are irreversible consequences. We have on the one hand climate change and we know that when we release greenhouse gases, um, methane will be around for maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 years, but they're gonna be 82 times as powerful in carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide for a, a century. So anything we, we put out or don't manage to foreclose, uh, our children are gonna to have to live with and our grandchildren will have to live with it, which of course, I won't, it's not the topic, but that uh, reflects on the, the great tragedy of the past four years in the United States is um, withdrawal because we had some momentum going there in Paris, which has for the while at least been stalled. So Israel, I think, needs to do much, much better in terms of our performance there. Uh, we would call for really upping our game in terms of renewable energy. Uh, right now, Israel has about 7% uh, renewable energy, almost entirely solar panels. And I see Yosef Abramovich smiling. He may want to say a word or two where he thinks it's going. Um, today, we saw in the papers, actually, that the Ministry of of uh, energy called for a 15 billion shekel program, which would, in on the one hand, Im improve our solar uh, diffusion, but also provide the infrastructure to provide natural gas to a lot. A lot of us think that Israel's uh, reliance on natural gas relies on past assumptions, which are no longer valid, both in terms of the economics, where now solar energy is so much less expensive than having uh, natural gas and in terms of what we now understand to be the much more powerful greenhouse warming effect that the methane and natural gas has. So I was delighted to see that our Minister of, of Energy, uh, Yuval Steinitz, was actually talking the talk of sort of a Green New Deal. We have an unemployment problem and let's put some money together. And he did have a component there, but the, the um, goals he set in terms of the, the rooftops and, and, the, um, and the open space solar generation are extremely modest compared to what we should be doing. I mean, uh, he's talking maybe we can get to 30% in five years. Well, Greece has 30% unemployment now. We, we should at least be in some place like that. And there's no reason with the drop in the projected and continued collapse of prices in the storage that Israel couldn't be a, a, a carbon neutral country. There are plans already in place for 2050. And, and that's one area where we need to do much, much better. And we've called for it in the blue and white platform. And I hope that we can all recognize it's good economics, it's good environmentally, and now it's, it's good uh, as a put Israelis back to work program. So that, that's one area where no question about it. And the other area involves uh, op open spaces and biodiversity. I can expand if you'd like. Go, sure, say a couple of sentences on that. Okay, well, well every two years we have a, a consortium of, of government agencies and non-government groups called the Marag that puts out the State of Nature report. And this year they reported that in the last three years, Israel lost hemorrhaged 70 square uh, kilometers of open spaces. This is a, a shocking amount of land. And we, as the country grows um, at 1.9% was today's uh, news, but generally 2% a year, um, we are sprawling out. and as a result of that, we are devastating our open spaces and the, and the sixth extinction, which is a, a global phenomenon, is having, starting to have 
a real Israeli uh, expression and manifestation. And it's on our watch. I mean, we were the Zionists who wanted to come and be a blessing to the land of Israel. And if you ask the creatures of the land, this is hardly a blessing, as we see more and more species, particularly mammal species, starting to go into retreat. Not all. I mean, the jackals are doing really well, and they're opportunistic. And, but the fact that we can see hyenas walking the streets of uh, Modin, and by the way, the corona time has been this crazy a period in terms of the wildlife. I mean, ibex walking through the streets of Eilat and wild boars taking over uh, Haifa, Park Yarkon. They say, don't go running there at night because they're jackals and they're hungry because the picnickers don't leave them food. So we're seeing this interface with animals, but we know from the experience that we've had uh, that it's, um, it's not a good idea. I've, I've seen a raccoon twice in Central Park in the last week, and that's two more times than in the previous year. Alon, will you say a couple of words about sort of regional issues? In other words, if Cajal de la ends up in the government, how do environmental issues work in the Stachim, in the Palestinian territories, for that matter, with Jordan or other neighboring countries? How do, in certain respects, environmental issues have been casualties? of the Arab-Israeli conflict. In certain respects, the environment has been a place for people to come together across difference. What do you think, what do you see as the sort of key challenges and opportunities there in the next year or two or beyond? Well, I think that when uh, we look at the, uh, the Trump's deal of the century plan, that is one of the great concerns we have. In other words, environmentally, there are many issues which we cannot solve unilaterally in Israel. We've got to do it with our neighbors. And the fact that the uh, Jordanian Hashemite kingdom, understandably, is so uh, opposed to unilateral annexation by Israel suggests that having any partner in a environmental cooperative accord will be much, much harder, let's say, frankly, impossible if, if we start uh, disregarding international law and, and annexing. Now, uh, we saw the first concrete, and I think broke my heart, uh, example of this when the King of Jordan, King Abdullah, canceled the agreement which had allowed Israelis to come into Naharaim, the so-called peace island, at the confluence of the Yarmouk and the Jordan River. This was one of the great achievements of the 1994 peace agreement, that we had a, an essentially a peace park. And you didn't need a, a passport, you could walk on there and, and wander about. It's not the most amazing nature reserve, but it's kind of cool, and you can see the old uh, and uh, the old train station, and you can sort of make jokes with the Jordanian soldiers, and it was, and it, it technically belonged to Jordan, but it was shared, and the king said no. In other words, the, the low level of trust and the demand of the Jordanian people to have consequences for the way Bibi Netanyahu had been dealing with a number of issues that they felt he'd been unfair about, really uh, had an immediate impact on, on joint cooperative ventures. Uh, you know, every year almost we have a, a conference about restoring the Jordan River in Jordan on the Dead Sea. And um, this year, it almost didn't take place. And when it did take place, we were told by the Jordanians, please do not send out any Facebook postings. This has to be kept a total secret for your own safety. So uh, there has been a, a clear step back. And although organizations like EcoPeace and the Arava Institute are still uh, under the radar screen, working with people and doing things that are remarkable, we need governments to be engaged here. And so the concern that we have is, is that if the government uh, does move forward with a, with a right-wing agenda of annexation of the West Bank without 
doing it in a context of a regional agreement, there will be consequences for all cooperation, including environmental cooperation. That's my um, unhappy prognosis at present. Thank you. Jessica, you had a question for Alon, far away. You got me while I was chewing. Sorry. Thanks, Alon. One of my favorite cartoons, because we all need humor in this era, are these doctors looking at this little curve. Oh, we're flattening the line, and then you know it says COVID, and then behind it is this huge mountain, and it says climate change, because we all know we're dealing with this one crisis now, but we have this other one coming right behind. I see tremendous opportunity in the breakdown, in a sense, of so many of the systems and the inequalities that are coming out and the unemployment and the opportunity to rebuild systems, so to speak. So I was wondering, what is Israel doing? I mean, we, we know that what they're doing now to address the current crisis, but who is working and what are you working on to sort of look at that next hill behind it uh, that we can learn from? Okay. Well, um, first of all, if you go into the Chazon website and listen to the, the wisdom that uh, Bill McGibbon shared about, you know, what we can learn from the corona crisis for the environment, there's a lot of really smart things he said. Uh, one of them was is that moving early matters, okay? So Israel has uh, made commitments at Paris, which we had hoped they would com uh, comply with. And we've pretty much fallen by the wayside. Uh, just this week, I put out an argument called Unfulfilled Promises, Israel's Implementation of the Paris Agreement. Uh, it's a long article, which will help you if you suffer from insomnia. But if you want details, there's a lot of areas where we, we said we do things that we didn't do. For example, we say we would increase uh, public transportation ridership by 20% and we have not. And um, we have not done the kind of energy conservation. Con so we've seen now that the per capita electricity has hardly changed, but because of the uh, population growth, popula uh, electricity go use goes up. So what does this mean in terms of the next step? Well, clearly what we need to do is moved to a strongly renewable. It is true that Israel has moved almost uh, out of the coal, which was uh, part of the Israeli energy package. And that's a good thing. And you got to give credit to Yuval Steinitz who did that. However, moving to natural gas was always supposed to be a transition fuel. And it's better for air quality, but even that produces air pollution. We have to stop four or seven, actually, if you look at the whole picture, proposed natural gas electricity plants are supposed to be the next generation. It doesn't make sense. If you look at the potential there of the rooftops with them, what the Ministry of Environment proposes an alternative, that is so important. And if we do that, then we can do the next step, which is moving towards the uh, electrified fleet of cars that we need to do, which is also extremely important. I think if I read correctly in Sweden, something like 70 or 80% of all the new cars there are electric. There's no reason we can't do that in Israel. It's a small country. You don't have all that far to go. And today, quite frankly, Tesla's pushed the battery radius so far that we should all be looking at electric vehicles. And, and so that's Hello, another area where transportation has been a major failure of, of our performance. So in terms of climate change, we have a lot to do in terms of the two major things that we have as a sources are electric electricity and the uh, transportation. But the third, which I think we need to, you know, Israel, if you look at their official declarations, only 3% of our carbon footprint is food. And we know that's not true. Why do you know that's not true? Because Israel imports 85% of its calories, okay? So if they're raising cows in Argentina, okay, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a carbon footprint. And so the fact that Israel is this very, very, um, how should they put it, 
paradoxical place. On the one hand, we have the lowest, uh, how should I put it, the, the highest number of vegans and vegetarians of any country in the world, 5% vegetarian, 5% vegans in the 15 to 30 age range, it is, it's off the charts by global standards. And yet, because we are such avid eaters of poultry, Israel has actually quite a high. We have eat more chicken than any other country in the world per capita. So we really need to start looking at our uh, diet more seriously. I look at the innovations brought about by things like Beyond Burger, Beyond Meat, and and uh, Impossible Burgers as maybe one way that we could bring Israelis Israelis over to a more uh, sustainable diet. But I think that's an area where we can all make a difference. And when Israelis say, "Well, what can I do?" That's the first thing we can have them do. And um, we're going to have to hope that uh, maybe. Well, certainly we're going to fly less over the next couple of years until people trust international travel again. But um, that's also a major issue. So yes, we have a lot to do in that area. Um, Israel is not a climate denying country. I will say to Israel's credit that the day that, uh, that Trump announced pulling out of the Paris Accord, uh, Minister Steinitz and the Minister of Environment separately tweeted their, um, their sorrow or their regret and that and announced right off the fact that we are staying with the program. So that is at least some news that it's not a right left polarizing issue like the states. And I hope that a unity government can really make climate change part of this new green deal, which will put now 1.2 million Israelis back to work. We're going to start to come into land, but I want to say that, that you very graciously were in sound the call uh, last Wednesday, as was Bill McKibben and other people. It's on YouTube. If you Google sound the call on YouTube, the whole tape is up there and you can see it. But for us as an organization, the punchline of sound the call and the punchline of our Brit Chazan is essentially saying to people in the Jewish community and for that matter beyond, look, do three things. Firstly, make some further change in your own personal behavior in order to live more sustainably. We may each of us only be one person in seven billion, but seven billion times each person adds up. We have to do that just morally and ethically. Secondly, um, give time and money to Chazan, but to all of the organizations who are doing this work, because the role of the third sector and of faith communities in driving systemic change needs to grow dramatically in the next three, five, 10 years. And thirdly, amplify your voice. Amplify your voice as a citizen. Amplify your voice in any institution that you're part of, right? We invite institutions to be part of the Chazan Seal of Sustainability as a multi-year process to drive change. We've said those things, three things as a way to try to have a frame. But Alon, if instead of being uh, or, or Director General of the Ministry of the Environment, if you could could give a piece of advice or encouragement or change in the American Jewish community to encourage us all to do X more or not do Y. What do you see the, the, the key levers being potentially in the Jewish community? Well, I would make a distinction between the Israeli Jewish community and the American Jewish community because Seth Wines was actually only a master's student at the University of British Columbia. And we wrote a, a particularly important article which appeared in 2017 in environmental levels in letters in which he basically asked the question, what can I do to reduce my carbon footprint? And there's so much we can do. You can stop using your dryer and of course improve your lighting in your house and you can stop taking transatlantic flights, et cetera, et cetera. But 50 times more than any single thing is have one less child. And that's very hard for the Jewish people to accept because we are still in the final stages of replacing the 6 million Jews 
By my count, my count, we've already done it, but certainly when we look at the projections that within the next 30 years, Israel's gonna double itself at a time when the Arab birth rates have dropped and are now for the first time Muslims have fewer kids than Jews, we have to think about whether this is a sustainable way to behave. So for the Israeli community, of course, the first thing I would say is, let's start putting this issue of demographic stability as a centerpiece of sustainability strategy on the public agenda. And I've uh, been a founder of an organization called Safuf, the Israel Forum for Population, Society, and Environment. It's a hard sell, but more and more Israelis are getting, catching up. And quite frankly, the corona experience for ultra-Orthodox families who saw that very basic axiom, you know, no problem is, isn't harder to solve with more people and easier to solve with fewer. As for the American Jewish community, well, first of all, you should be involved in, um, I'm hard, 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 I hope I don't misuse the, the Chazon uh, platform, but you need to be involved in the democratic politics to get a government and a leader and executive branch that recognize we have a, a climate crisis and is willing to do something about it. So uh, I think that any environmentalist in the world must be an endorser of, of, a, of a presidential candidate who has a, takes that position. Um, I don't want to take that too far because I know we want to be apolitical with an NGO, but that's so, so self-evident one needs to expand. Um, but I think there are things you can do in a community-wise. Certainly there shouldn't be a single synagogue in the country whose roofs aren't, have, don't have solar panels on them. Um, I, I think that the, 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 the energy transition is so central for everybody. Um, you know, cutting down your trips as much as possible. If you can live near your work and take your bike, of course, that's a, that's a good thing to do. Um, and I, now we've all learned how we can do so much uh, from home. I, I hope to teach half my classes now in this very room because uh, it certainly makes my life easier. And I think there are advantages in seminars actually to having your whole 10 faces on the screen that I found pedagogically. So there's a lot of things I think that people uh, can do. And the main thing is like you said, just do something. Figure out what you can do, you can't do everything. There's the famous line from Pirkei Avot, Lo Alecham you, get, you don't have to finish the task, but you cannot desist from it. And then what I'd like to say also is that famous Midrash, which I guess we should be saying every day about the, it comes from, I think, the Vayikra Rabba about the, the guys in the boat. And somebody started drilling the hole under his seat. And they said, what are you doing? He said, what do you care? It's under my seat. And he says, no, no, we're all going to sink together. And that is the lesson of the coronavirus. And it certainly is something we need to apply it in climate change and in every area that we need to all be part of the solution. Alana, I'm, I'm, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to um, let you as a very final word say either a last word or even something you've been watching, something you've been reading, music you've been listening to. But I just want to say a couple of things before we wrap. Um, firstly, I just want to say on the public policy side of it, this year is the 20th anniversary of Chazan's beginning. And we, we began with a cross-country Jewish environmental bike ride. And one of the things that we were thinking about before the coronavirus blew, and I've got no idea now, to be honest, whether this is going to happen or not. We were thinking about doing a 20th anniversary ride, but instead of doing it across the country, we were thinking about doing it in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Illinois and Wisconsin. <laughs> and, going, and going in September and October between synagogues and JCCs and faith communities and inviting anybody to come with us and saying, we're here on behalf of the Jewish community to say we've got a climate crisis Jewish tradition compels us to respond, and as well as everything else, there is an election coming up, and what's most important is that you vote for the candidates at every level who are taking this more seriously. We'll see if, uh, if we end up doing that or not. Anybody uh, seeing this 
now or subsequently who's interested in that uh, be in touch with me. Um, I wanna, um, I wanna, Alon, thank you for joining us. I wanna thank uh, Liana and Ellie on our staff for um, setting this up. And I wanna thank all of you on Zoom and on Facebook Live for joining us. Next week, very sadly, we I actually just have a... One sentence before we, we sign word. I'm gonna give you the last word, hold oh, on. Oh, great, and then so wrap it up, up then, okay. Um, uh, next week, uh, very bizarrely, we've got a Hazan board meeting at noon. So although we've been in this slot every time, next week, the after the plague, Nigel Savage in conversation with is going to be at half past 10 EST. And it's actually going to be with Natty, Danny, and Shuli Passau together. Shuli is a conservative rabbi, uh, and she's one of the rabbis at B'nai Jeshurun in New York. Uh, Danny is an Orthodox rabbi uh, and is at Harvard Hillel. And Natty was the leader for many years of Jewish Farm School, and they are three siblings. And so we're going to be with Natty Shilley and Danny Passau together next week at half past 10, talking about after the plague. Um, but for this week, Alon, thank you so much. And I want to hand over to you for any last words. Well, I just want to remind everybody that uh, the day after tomorrow is the evening of Independence Day. Israel's celebrating its 72nd birthday. And with all of our shared concerns and criticism, it is still a miracle. And I am forever reminded, we just had a Holocaust day, that my great-grandfather was shot in his bed because he was too sick to get up when the Nazis came. And he could not have imagined that his great-grandson and his great-great-granddaughters would all be fighting for a Jewish state and that we have done something miraculous. And quite honestly, with all of its problems, we've done some amazing things environmentally. I would even say the way we've handled the corona crisis. With, you know, it's a very, very robust democracy. But if you look at the results, we're among the, the better managed and more intelligent responses. And I want to credit this government with doing that well. So what I want to say to all of you who may be disappointed in Israel or not happy with the election outcome, this is no time to pull away. This is the time to double down on Israel. Because those of us who are fighting, not just for environmental interests, but for a healthy democratic society to make a, a third Jewish commonwealth we can all be proud of. We need that kind of, of backing up that Chazon prov provides every year when it drives with us across the country and this all of you do in your own ways. So I want to thank those of you who stay engaged. It means so much to us. We're right here on the front lines and I see so many people that are like David and, 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 and all the other Israelis who have signed in and how much it matters to all of us to stay together as one family working together for a, a common Jewish peoplehood in our one country. Thank you. Alon, Amon Tadot, Chag Sameach, Yeshekarach, and Mahatzlacha. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, everybody. We're adjourned. See you next time.